Welcome to the Seafood Matters Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Cowie. In each episode, I speak with industry leaders, fishery scientists, fishermen, and seafood chefs. We'll highlight the importance of seafood in our daily lives, economy, and environment. Whether you catch your own seafood, love cooking it, or want to learn more about where your fish comes from, you'll find it all here on the Seafood Matters Podcast. If you enjoy this episode, hit subscribe, share it with a friend, or leave a five-star review. And you can get in touch with me by visiting seafoodmatterspodcast.com. Natalie Steins qualified as a senior marine social scientist. Since 2016, she's been a senior researcher and project leader at the Wageningen Marine Research and chair of the ISIS Human Dimension Steering Group. In this episode, Natalie shares her opinion on how Brexit has affected quota negotiations. She also explains how technologies are being used to collect scientific data and how an emerging generation of scientists are valuing the wisdom that can be obtained through closer working relationships with fishermen. Enjoy this altogether positive outlook for the future of the fishing industry with Natalie Steins. Welcome to Seafood Matters Podcast, Natalie. I would just like to ask you, first of all, with the fish stock assessment advice prior to quote allocations, we start, you know, the advisory, advise 17% cut and it finishes up 15%. Is that a bargaining position? For negotiations, is it an advisory? How how does it all start and finish? Yeah, I think it's very important uh, to keep the distinction between, uh, on the one hand, the scientific advice, and then on the other hand, the political decision about how high uh, the quota are going to be. So the responsibility of ICES, the International Council for the Exploration of the Seas, is to give uh, an advice on fishing opportunities. And what they do is they answer a question that the European Commission, in this case, uh, asks them. So um, they ask, for example, um, what would be uh, uh, the maximum allowable catch if you would base your management on uh, maximal, maximum sustainable yield. So that gives uh, ICES answers that question. Uh, it also uh, gives a number of other options in the table and then that goes to the, um, to the European Commission and once that um, uh, advice is handed over then there's a whole process of negotiation where uh, stakeholders, so fishing industry, NGOs, different member states, um, yeah, in the cases of uh, shared stocks like COD, for example, it's the UK, it's the European Union nowadays, they have to negotiate in the end um, what's going to happen with the advice. And sometimes the managers, they decide to stick to the advice and sometimes they go lower or higher. And um, uh, in that respect, you know, they also take into account all, all kinds of social and economic considerations that uh, the ICES advice doesn't take into account because ICES only advises on bio biological uh, considerations. Yeah. 
it's it's obviously concerning for fishermen because obviously it's a it has a direct effect on their their livelihoods and running their businesses. Absolutely. And yeah, and when it's you see scientists and fishermen closing the gap between science and fishing, that's fishermen don't always see it that way, but they certainly see it as a definite step in the right direction. Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, uh, also when you uh, just going back to your question about the um, the ICES advice and the setting of the quota, ICES obviously works on the basis of the best available uh, knowledge. And we do have stocks for which there are uh, uncertainties and uh, because, for example, there are not enough data. Um, and in the past, there would always, um, yeah, there would... There, there, there would often be these situations where fishers would blame the scientists for uh, for quota uh, levels, which is not the responsibility of scientists. But of course, scientists do have a responsibility to make sure that uh, the best available information is used. And I think recently we've really seen that uh, scientists and fishers have much more appetite to actually work together to make sure that ICES does get these, um, you know, the best available uh, data. And maybe if I if I can use an example, we had a, a situation in the Netherlands where I am from uh, about 20 years ago, where the scientists and the uh, and the fishing industry really, uh, uh, yeah, the, 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 the relationship wasn't really good because the fishers um, basically said, well, scientists, you have it all wrong with your stock assessment for the main commercial species, place and soil uh, in the Netherlands, and the scientists were like. But yeah, but I mean, you know, this is the, these are the data. This is the model. So, uh, and we we don't set the quota, so you can't blame us. And we started to have this uh, this research collaboration where the industry actually um, where we invested a lot of time in relationship building, and the industry realized that, for example, um, the discard data. So that's the data on the undersized catches in the model for place were really really poor, uh, and this was because there was only money for ten scientific research trips per year so you can imagine that is a very small part of the uh, of the effort of the whole fleet um, so then the fishing industry asked like can we help you and we actually set up a self-sampling program which after some improvements uh, and you know you have to learn by doing um, resulted um, in the conclusion that the, uh, the self-sampling data by the industry were as good as the data that the scientists were uh, collecting but also they had much more uh, coverage and much more quantity. So nowadays um, in the stock assessment for uh, for place, for example, uh, we use the, uh, the self-sampling data from the fishing industry because they're so much better than the scientific data. And that process really uh, helped us, helped our relationship. And we really have a thriving um, science industry research collaboration now. And it's really nice also to see that this, this is also picking up in, uh, in other countries. So also, for example, in the UK, scientists and fishers are working uh, increasingly together. Yeah, it's what it's concerning quite a lot of the fishermen and especially in, in you could say well, Scotland in the whole but mainly northeast and north is they're getting caught out in a few different ways but not by any ways are they blaming scientists and it's not all 
negative, but it's got impacts. No, one of them is the just exactly from the points you've made. They have a monkfish reduction this year, and they talk about data poor. They've finished with a small increase. They got a small increase in cod, but they're they're putting a north. They're putting a west coast. They're starting a west coast quota this year. So some of the cod that people exp the increase in cod in the North Sea that fishers expected to get for this year, it won't be. They won't be getting so much of anything now because it's going. They're opening the west coast and it's going in there, but they see it as a step forward. Although in in the short term they didn't. They're not going to enjoy the increase they thought they would get, but they can see it's making progress. Also, species like ling was swapped with Norway. Saith was swapped with Pharaoh. So there's, you know, it's there's a lot of different factors coming in and some quite a number of them are, are impacting their profitability. Yes, yeah, exactly. And I think that's, you know, something that we see in fisheries well, all over Europe uh, uh, nowadays. And yeah, it's, it's sometimes it's difficult huh? because, um, uh, of course, you know, what, what, what fishers want in the first place is to keep their business uh, going. And then very often, uh, you know, collaborating with scientists is not necessarily uh, top priority also when it's uh, sometimes cost them money yeah? because um, uh, of course it takes time to collect samples for example or to do measurements and if fishers are done they're not compensated for it uh, and they don't really see the short-term benefit uh, it's quite difficult because it's yeah it's also one of the things that we've encountered is that um, uh, fishers very often expect in these research collaborations where we start collecting data together that the results will be immediate. But many of the scientists for many of these stocks, uh, for example, you need time series of at least five years before uh, data can be useful for the model. So it's actually a, uh, an investment that doesn't really pay back immediately. And of course, also, it's not necessarily the case that when the data improve, that your quota advice uh, goes up. Uh, there is no guarantee yeah, that when there is better data, that there is also um, uh, a higher quota going to be the result. So the only guarantee you can give is that there is a better stock assessment with less uncertainties. So that that's yeah. that makes it complicated sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, the other factor coming into play is with break the Brexit if, uh, impacts, it's greatly helping the, the pelagic side, but I mean, but not not the demersal. And of course, you could imagine the demersal won't see that as the rich uncle is getting more than the poor cousin. <laughs> Yeah, I think the, the Brexit is. I mean, it's in the end. I think you know, it's it's it hasn't. 
I think the outcome hasn't been good for either the fishers in the UK nor the fishers in the in the European uh, uh, in the European Union. Because um, in the end, I mean, it's about uh, you know you you have to manage those stocks. For example, if you talk about the North Sea, you have to manage them together, and um, uh, that also means that as stakeholders, um, you have to. Um, yeah, um, that, you, that you have to, to, to work together. And, you know, with the Brexit, we had, of course, the advisory councils uh, that were actually playing a really good role, I think, in, in European fisheries management. And, of course, when uh, with the Brexit, uh, the UK had to had to leave um, um, the advisory councils uh, as, a, as an active member, so they can be observers, but that's, of course, a very different role. Um, and also, you know, in cases where, um, yeah, where, where we have situations where uh, there's quota owners from different countries uh, who have quote who had quotas in the UK, for example, I think also, you know, that that collaboration that that in the in the past was quite good uh, has gone has gone down a little bit. So I think it's a real. I think Brexit is a real shame because I think nobody. The, the, uh, a lot of promises were being made, particularly also to your uh, the UK inshore fleet, that the government now can't uh, keep keep up with. And um, I think a lot of relationships have been damaged. And I think that's a really, yeah, sad situation actually. I have to say I agree with you. And the fishermen, where they were seen, you know, at the end of the day, Natalie. They, were, they bought into something they could see, they were told and they could see that it was going to be a benefit to them. But if you don't mind me using the term, they were shafted. And I think what we, between the all the documentation and extra costs to put fish into Europe now and not getting the benefits they were hoping as an Nylon nation and with their own fishing grounds ownership, they lost the best part. No, they they lost the best part of being a member, to and and got the got the worst part. Yeah, it certainly made uh, you know also the uh, the the, uh, the quota setting much more uh, much more complicated now. And the problem is, of course, we yeah you can't the fish know no no boundaries. So it's a resource that you have to manage to that you have to manage together. And it's just more complicated if you're not like in the same in the same group. There so, is consensus yeah. of opinion and what you say there that. I don't. I think fishermen don't see, don't possibly see it. Not arguing with ICs, but they don't see it. Whether you're, and when when I was speaking with Mark Dickey Colas, he was, no, we're talking about the cod as we're saying there just now. But when they talk about you talk about North Sea cod, it takes in southern part of the North Sea, mid North Sea. I think even the Baltic. And and the, and now because our fishermen are seeing lots of fish, lots of cod around the Shetland waters, but they were not getting the increase uh, 
felt the should have got because of the effects of the downside in, in other places which they didn't see quite fair. Yeah. Yeah, I think the the good the the good thing is that you know we, we talked about the Brexit and um, um, the Brexit hasn't really affected uh, the scientific collaboration um, that much. So uh, the UK is still part of ICES. Uh, there's the UK is still doing their surveys. Uh, they're they're collecting the data also from the fishing industry. And all the, you know, so in, in that in that sense, it's business as usual within uh, within ICs. Um, but I think the the impact on yeah on in the end the negotiations that are based on on ICs advice that has really really uh, uh, complicated uh, things a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to just go forward and ask you. You mentioned in a in, so, um, in a paper. Is it is it circ? Yeah. Is it pronounced S I R C? What correct? What, can you can you tell me what is that? Well, it's it's basically the abbreviation for science industry research collaboration. And um, yeah, it's it's something uh, that we that we are seeing um, uh, uh, in recent years happening more and more often that fishers really have a. Uh, yeah, a clear appetite to actually work, collaborate with scientists, but also to take the lead in, um, um, yeah, coming forward with all kinds of uh, data and setting up research pr uh, programs. And they often do this in collaboration with scientists, either because uh, scientists from their own institutes, but it could also be scientists who are, for example, um, uh, employed by the fishing uh, by the fishing industry, so like the Scottish Pelagics, for example, they have Steve Mackinson who is employed as their uh, science officer. Um, and when you have a uh, you know when you have this relation between uh, scientists and, and and fishers and a willingness co to collaborate, then often we get really really nice um, uh, uh, projects. And we also see this with a new generation of scientists. They really want to work together with the fishers because they realize that. Fishers are basically, you know, our eyes and ears at sea, yeah? because we can't be at sea at sea all the time. It's very expensive for a scientist to go to to the sea all the time, and fishers are at sea all the time. So uh, they see things, they know things, um, and in these uh, CERC projects, science industry research collaboration projects, we can actually try and get to get the most out of the knowledge that fishers have. And the, the opportunities they uh, they provide, and this could could either be you know uh, collecting data um, that you can measure, like you know how many uh, how many cod do fishers catch, or what's the the size uh, of the cod that they catch, uh, but it could also be knowledge um, that's that they have from uh, from experience, um, you know about. Um, uh, which areas are uh, you know good spawning areas, for example, or um, uh, yeah, uh, where is, where are there? Uh, we also had this this project about um, you know vulnerable species, like where are these located, and if you want to reduce your impact on vulnerable species, uh, which areas uh, should you perhaps avoid in certain times of the year? So that's also knowledge that could be very useful for uh, for scientists. And it's interesting in what you, you say there, and I'm just wondering if there's a link with this uh, science, what, what, what do you call it, science? 
Science Industry Research Collaboration. Research Collaboration. And some of the fishermen, depending on what the producers' organization they're members of, they've got group apps. And if they go to an area and get a particular species, they'll put it on the app so that the producers, the PO, producers' organization, are collating all this information which I think is anything like that is using technology and going forward. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, one of the, the, the things that we experienced, because we did a, uh, together with a, a group of international colleagues, I looked at these science industry research collaboration projects and how effective they are, for example, and how much are they, they are used. And one of the things um, that is really important is that when you, as an industry, if you start collecting your own data, um, you have to really talk to the scientists who are going to use uh, the, to use the data. Because, for example, for stock assessments, ICS needs uh, data in a very specific format. Um, so it's always really, really good um, when fishers think about: okay, we want to collect uh, data, we want to contribute to. For example, improving a stock assessment or whatever, talk to, the, to talk to your scientists in your institutes as well, uh, so that we can make sure that the data that are being collected also meets the uh, yeah the criteria um, that ICES, for example, or your national institute um, uses, because otherwise it's a shame. Uh, uh, fishers can come, you know, with a lot of data and then maybe. They're not usable because just one thing was forgotten, for example. So that's yeah. a that's a really important uh, lesson, and that's also why I always really encourage fishers who want to start collecting their own uh, uh, their own data uh, to work together with a scientist, um, so that these uh, yeah these things that can be avoided are actually avoided from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. So possibly there's either link a link with the producers' organisations on this cirque. Yes, and I think you know the sometimes maybe the producers' organisations they have these apps uh, for a different reason, not necessarily for collecting data for science, but for example, um, uh, to know where there is big. Um, uh, whereas areas with lots of undersized fish, so that you so that they can warn fishers like please avoid these areas these weeks, right? So then the the objective of the data collection is very different. But maybe with with a little tweak, these data could also be used in science. So that's also I think why it's uh, why it's good also as a PO to when you start um, to collect data maybe for management purposes. It would be interesting also to have a chat with uh, your local scientists to see. If these data um, could also be used by uh, by scientists to improve stock assessment or, or knowledge about the stocks, because in in the end, you know, uh, the more data and knowledge we have, the the better these the stock assessments are going to be. Yeah, yeah. One of the other species that I know a particular friend of mine was talking about the the they give information on this app was dogfish. Mm -hmm. So the area they caught them, and they obviously they have a quota, so they are allowed to catch them, but maybe not everybody, and so many of them would want to avoid them. Yes, exactly. 
yeah. yeah, that's a good example. Yeah, and that's also a, f uh, a species where uh, 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 ISIS doesn't really have a lot of data uh, about. So you know, the data that are is collected via apps could be potentially be really interesting. Oh well, hopefully that maybe mean that S Seafood Matters podcast could be making a contribution to the. <laughs> that would be nice. <laughs> Yes, I would love to think that we were helping helping it. Going from that, it's interesting when you say there about undersized fish. What would you? What would your? I don't want to put you on the spot, but just your views because one of our earlier podcasts was with a fishery scientist from Iceland called Jon Christensen, and he was telling us he did some studies and surveys in the North Sea and he was he felt that he well I'll put it the way he put it he was on the fish market in Peterhead there was haddock obviously from a Icelandic point of view he said that they were like herring because obviously mm -hmm. they were much smaller than they would have in Iceland and he did a age test, you know, the bone, I think there's a bone in the head they took out. He did an age test and it was be the fish were between four and five years old. And, and that was the size, they were just about the third, legal size, about 30 millimetres. He said, if that fish of that age was caught in Iceland, it would have been over two kilos in weight. But also he felt that they should be fished out because they were, the problem is that if we increase the mesh size, more there's gonna be more of that year stock left in the sea and they're going to compete for the available food. Yeah, well, I am not to be to be honest. I'm not a biologist, uh, but I do know from you know from uh, from my colleagues that there's many species in the North Sea who are actually uh, well, their growth is basically basically lagging behind. So normally they would have been bigger at the at the age um, they have. Um, in the you know in the past they would be bigger compared to now at the same age. Um, yeah, it's not completely uh, clear where this uh, what is this uh, coming from. Uh, it could be it could be that there is less nutrients. It could be that there is competition between between fish stocks. Um, uh, yeah, it could be all it could be all kinds of um, um, factors that uh, that. But I'm as I said I'm not a biologist, but I. I do know that we actually don't know. Um, we only know the tip of the iceberg. You know what's happening with fish, with fish, uh, fish stocks and growth, and how the species interact. Um, also, the impacts of you know climate change, of maybe reduced plankton levels in uh, in the water. So, yeah, it's 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 something I think that we should look much more in, uh, much more into. Yeah. Yeah. But I can't give you an answer, I'm afraid, because I'm a social scientist. So uh, I only know what I, uh, because I work with fishermen and I work a lot with fisheries biologists. I have 
a little bit of, of knowledge, but uh, I wouldn't dare to answer this question. Um, no, sorry, I didn't. Don't worry. Um, I didn't. I didn't mean it in a question, putting you on the spot. I just wondered what have you had a view a view yeah. on it? That's 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 yeah. all. I think you know. I thought what I thought was so interesting was the fact that that fish would have been absolute maximum about four to five hundred grams, and there's Jan saying if that was an Iceland, it would have been over two kilos. Yeah. That's al- I thought yeah. that was alarming. Yeah, yeah, we see. I mean, but we see the same with 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 other species, and I think, um, you know, one of the things is that, of course, what we're doing in many of the European seas, also in the North Sea, is that we manage the fisheries based on single stocks. Uh, so the quota are all set for a sp- specific stock, but we know there is interactions between species, and that we also know there is interactions with the the, the ecosystem and nutrients on fish stocks. So what we really want, what we really should strive for is an ecosystem-based approach to the management of the fish stocks. But that is something that is really, really difficult to to implement in the North Sea, not only because um, we don't have all the science, the science is not all ready for it, but also because it would mean that um, the whole, you know, common fisheries policy, for example, may have May have to be changed to uh, to do these things to you know to get away from single stock um, uh, management and looking for example more at mixed fisheries management which is very very complicated and which would also probably have impacts you know on uh, yeah and fishing opportunities um, uh, for fishers so there's a lot of complications uh, with this not only in the science but also on the management side of it. Yeah, that's interesting because yeah. I asked, I had a podcast just a couple of weeks ago with a guy I think you know him very well, Mike Park. Yes. And Mike said, I said that to him because Mark Dickey mentioned the mixed fishery and he thought that was not a area, not a direction he was comfortable with going because he felt with it being mixed, he says it would all be based on the lowest species. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's how it works now. So um, so basically the, the lowest, the weakest link in the chain, basically. So your lowest quota species, once that is being exhausted, you know, you would have to stop the rest of the fishery, which is obviously socioeconomically uh, could, be, could be potentially really dramatic for... Um, for fishers so that i think you know if you want to go for this ecosystem based management and mixed fisheries management we really have to rethink our whole way of managing uh, the fisheries and that may even be managing without quota but managing basically maybe on the, on based on efforts but you can imagine if you start doing this it has huge repercussions for fishers because people for example in cases where where fishers have bought quota, where there's, you know, individual transferable quota systems, um, you would suddenly take, you know, their, their value of their business away uh, from them. Uh, it could have potentially, you know, uh, yeah, maybe fishers would have to invest in new fishing gears and all those kinds of things. So the impacts of moving to a different system are just really, really uh, big. So I can really understand the reluctance with managers and also with the fishing industry to you know, to to go to, to start thinking about these um, alternatives, alternative management systems. Do you have an 
a, a position on what you feel about when it's when we're talking about mixed fisheries and going in the the lowest quota species and what's weakest link. Have you any views on predator stock? Yeah, that's that's another uh, that's an all uh, a whole other uh, thing that you have to uh, keep in uh, keep in mind uh, because there's also f fisheries biologists who say, well, if you know if a predator stock is getting becoming too big, uh, you should fish a little bit more of the predator stock so that the other species that are eaten actually can can grow. And there's a lot of uh, that's also I think part of ecosystem based um, uh, management. And of course, you know, in the mixed fishery now, it works like, like the weak. It's the weakest links link. But there is also, um, um, I know that ICs, the mixed fisheries group, has developed these models where you can actually uh, sort of look for the optimum uh, of fishing of all the species in a different um, uh, mixed fisheries, where maybe some of the species will suffer a little bit, uh, but where your main species. Um, uh, well, fish, where fishers could still sort of fish for their for their main species, and then some species maybe would be underutilized, but you know you would have to find a balance basically, and finding that balance is is difficult because it's not only about the biology of the stocks and how they interact, but it's also about the socioeconomics behind it. Yeah, it's really complicated. It is. It is. Yeah, and. You know, one of the things that is complicated as well is that there is no um, real um, targets for social and economic objectives in the common fisheries policy. So in the European common fisheries policy, there are uh, uh, things are being said about social and economic considerations that they can take in can be taken into account, but there are no clear targets for it. And if there's no clear targets, it's really, really difficult to um, to develop um, uh, uh, fishing uh, advice uh, where the different trade-offs, you know, between different quotas um, are made visible. Because in the end, it's, it's a trade-off, right? Do you want to have more employment at the expense of maybe uh, a fish stock not recovering as fast as as it could? Uh, or do you think, well, this fish stock is in such dire straits now that you really want to go uh, for maximum recovery at the expense of, you know, maybe uh, employment? Um, and to make this trade-off analysis, you really need, uh, well, first of all, you need data, social and economic data, but you also need some, um, you need some um, reference points or uh, objectives for social and economics. And we do have these reference points and objectives for the stocks, but we don't have them for, um, yeah, for, for, for fishers and for fishing communities, for example. So for the socioeconomic uh, part. Yeah. And, yeah. I know one of the concerns with this area, with the fishermen, is when we talk about predator stock and, and its complexities, as they say, it can't just be governed by mesh size. He said they say because if you are increasing the mesh size or or to let immature you know, white it just say immature cod and haddock escape from the net. Well, with the different size of the different species, when you're letting them immature cod or 
see cod ling haddock escape, you're letting a mature whiting because yes. they are generally smaller, so that's a more mature whiting. So you're all you're doing with letting the smaller mature cod, smaller cod and other species escape is food for the mature whiting. Yeah, and that's you know that's also uh, one of the, you know the the, the big uh, challenges, of course, in the in the in the mixed fisheries is how do you um, how do you devise uh, uh, net fishing nets that actually um, are so selective that you still re retain the catch that you want to catch, but release the other stuff. I mean, that's a puzzle. I think that's, you know, fishers and, and fishing gear technologists have been trying to resolve for the past, uh, well, for 50 years already. And it's just super, super difficult. Um, you know, yeah. And I think also that requires collaboration between fishers and between uh, between uh, between uh, scientists, but it also requires um, um, it also requires that in the end, you know, when I think you know the, the problem is with many of the um, uh, um, escape panels and escape. Um, release panels that are, are are being developed and some of them are super um uh super selective so for example in the in the nephrops fishery um uh we have developed a couple of yeah uh, adaptations to the existing nets that really result in uh a reduction of unwanted bycatches of smaller fish but there is always still a little bit of um of your wanted catch that you uh, that you lose, and uh, when we then talk to fishers about this, they say, "Well, it would be okay if everybody else would use this, and we would all there would be a level playing field. Because if all the fishers lose a little bit of their marketable catch, then it's okay. You know, um, we will get used to it. We know that everybody is is um, yeah is suffering a little bit." But that's very, very difficult to achieve because if you want to um, uh, uh, have the same, um, yeah, this, you know, the same escape panel, for example, like not all the fishing vessels uh, and nets are the same. So a panel that works in one of the uh, vessels doesn't necessarily have to work very well in another. Uh, and then we get to, we get to EU. The EU says, okay, we can put this in our technical measures regulations, which takes a lot of time. And then, of course, there's always fishers saying, but it doesn't work in our fishery. So, can we please have an exemption? So, that's really, really, really difficult. And then the level playing field is also gone. So, there's quite, yeah, it's, 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 it, it shows how complicated fishers, uh, fisheries really are. And what, what I sometimes see is that we try to manage fisheries in this one, one, uh, way suits all one fits all way and yeah that's that's not gonna that's not gonna work because even within uh fish fisheries that fish for the same species that's fast uh, fast changes so fast differences so i think if you want to make change you have to do that together with the group of fishers at least to fish with the same you know with uh, in, in in a similar in a similar fishery similar nets similar gears and also maybe there's something that that could be done with uh, you know with market um uh rewards because uh we also talked you know i also talked to fishers uh, as part of a study i did and they say well you know if we would get uh, rewarded for example by getting extra money for our fish 
um, compared to those fishers who don't use, the, who don't do the extra bit, it would be fine as well. But in the end, uh, the market doesn't, you know, the buyers don't differentiate. For them, it's all uh, nephrops for in this example that I just gave that go to the auction. And if a fisher puts in this, uh, you know, this this uh, selective escape panel, it costs him uh, money, costs him time, but he doesn't get any, um, yeah, financial reward for it either. Uh, I've been, I'm just wondering when you mention about a comment about the gear. I'm just wondering if maybe you're thinking and. Uh, you know something about I've, I've just re recently been doing a podcast with a girl from fisheries innovation and sustainability cara brightson her name is and she talked about smart roll do you have any knowledge of no i'm afraid i don't well seemingly what they're working on with smart roll is that they're the skipper will be almost sitting on his on the bridge of his the wheelers of his boat, and he can be watching the net, and they can control whether if it's a species they have no quota for that they can escape. Oh well, that I mean that would uh, I think that's that's something that uh, would help a lot of fishers if you could see underwater what's happening in your in your net and then decide on whether you know you're going to release the uh the catch i think that's that would be super beneficial uh, and i know that i know in the in the pelagic fisheries um, uh, one of my colleagues is actually working on something uh something similar um uh, so that uh, yeah you can see in the net what's what's there and then the skipper can decide to either let the catch go or uh, bring in the net yeah yeah, and I think you know with the now with nowadays with like the advanced camera technologies that we have, this is becoming increasingly um, uh, uh, possible. Uh, particularly when it's not, uh, you know, when when the the underwater when the view is 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 clear. I mean, when it's very like in many of the bottom trolls, for example, when sediments are being stirred, it's very dark in the nets, so it's really difficult to actually see something with a camera. But maybe in future there will be other ways of. Um, um, you know, of of, of, of of distinguishing those um, those different species. I think that that's one of the great things about te 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 technology that it offers all these kinds of new opportunities and new ways of thinking as well um, about how to fish. Yeah, the I know going back quite some time ago, one of the concerns with the mesh was even fish escaping they would they would maybe lose scales or get damaged when mm -hmm. they were wriggling out and yeah. and really some of them just would not survive even although yes. they did escape yeah yeah and that would uh, of course that would be another way of approaching it uh, if you can't uh, um, organize the escape of the smaller fish underwater, what could you do to increase the survivability of the fish that is actually uh, uh, hold on board and that and then is being uh, you know and and then is being put overboard if that's allowed because of of course the discards ban that we have but 
But that's something that we are looking into as well. So, uh, for example, my uh, one of my colleagues for the demersal fisheries, uh, the beamfrol fisheries in the, in the Netherlands, um, he's working on this gear. It's called the kiwi pit. And uh, if you wonder what, where the word kiwi comes from, it's actually something that was uh, developed in New Zealand in the pelagic fisheries. <laughs> um, and it's basically what, what is happening is that um, uh, uh, they don't... F- the, the cod end of the of the vessel of the uh, of the net is actually a big bag so the fish is being brought alive on board in a bag of water uh so it's um and there in in the in the bag of water there there are already escape uh uh, uh holes where the fish could where, where smaller fish could um could actually uh uh escape underwater but all the fish that can't escape is being brought uh, on board in a big bag with water um, and then uh, can be released it's not it's not damaged because it's it's actually still swimming and the small fish can be released super quickly um, and that's something and we can we can see that you know the the condition of the fish that comes on board the undersized fish is very very good so the the, the chances that the fish uh, has a high survivability uh, survival rate are quite high so this is something that we are now experience, experiencing uh, experimenting with together with uh, with fishers and uh, yeah we really hope that we uh, that we found um, yeah another part of the puzzle in uh, in reducing the impacts of uh, mixed fisheries on um, on stocks it's, it sounds almost like it's reassuring and exciting that there's so much you, I, I would say it's using technology and taking it forward because it the only thing that I have a wee bit of a problem with with the bag at the end of the net is how there can be holes to let small fish escape but it still retains water <laughs> yeah 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 of course the water of course eventually goes uh uh, yeah, the, 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 I think the, the, you know the main problem is, of course, the stability of of the of the of the vessel, right? Because if you have a bag of water that you have to bring up, that's quite a that's quite a thing. So um, you know that's that's one of the issues that that they are looking into uh, into right now. But in, in the end, you know, everything that is not ne- that is not needed, like the water and the undersized fish, uh, is goes back overboard. So. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, of course, there is uh, challenges with, you know, with safety and things. So, uh, but the idea was first, let's try it out, see if it works in the, de- if we can get it to work in the demersal fisheries, because uh, it's a very different concept, of course, compared to the pelagic fisheries, where this kiwi pit was originally developed, uh, developed for. But so far, yeah, uh, initial re- results are looking, uh, are looking quite good. That's, a, that's really fantastic to hear that. Can I quote from your one of your papers? Uniqueness of fishers' knowledge, utility of fishing industry's contribution to science. Mm-hmm. What is that? <laughs> yeah, I think you know when we talk about uh, so getting back to this science industry research collaboration, um, what scientists tend would do want to have, I mean, that's what their models are based on, are figures, right? Of things that you can actually measure. So, for example, the length of a fish, uh, how many fish of a certain species uh, fishers have caught, uh, things like that. And um, 
a lot of the uh, science industry research collaboration actually focuses on those kind of, yeah, collecting these kind of observational data. Um, but there is also, uh, uh, and, and, and these measurable data like length of fish and quantity and numbers, that's something that, that the scientists can put into, into the models and can become part of a stock assessment. But of course, fishers also have this unique knowledge that they have gained because of their lifelong experience of being a fisher. And very often this knowledge is being transferred from, you know, from father to son. And this information is basically, uh, yeah, it's in fishers' heads, basically. Um, and it's not necessarily uh, easy to put it in, in numbers. So fishers know very well in what times of the year, for example, uh, they can f they can find certain uh, fish species um, in, in which area. They know when the wind is, uh, is from, a certain, uh, uh, from a certain direction at a certain strength, uh, you better not go out fishing for this species because then you don't, won't catch anything. So all that kind of um, information um, that they know um, that can be super useful also for scientists, um, but it's very difficult to, to for that unique knowledge to actually um, um, be used into into current fisheries uh, science and to, into stock assessments. And very often I get this uh, uh, you know, when I uh, talk to my fisheries uh, biologist colleagues and I say, oh, well, you know, I've been doing, I've been talking to uh, these fishers and they have noticed this, uh, this happening. I very often get the answer, yeah, sorry, we can't do anything with that because that's anecdotal evidence. Uh, and it's almost as if this is then sort of dismissed. And of course, anecdotal evidence doesn't mean that it's not true or that it's less true. It means that it has not been collected in a systematic way. And this is something I think that social scientists really can help with because we have you know, been trained to collect these uh, evidence or exper exper experiential knowledge that fishers um, have in a, in, a, in a way that we could make it accessible to um, yeah, also to fisheries uh, scientists. And I think that's, you know, one of the, the, the big challenges that we are currently um, uh, facing. There's a lot of knowledge out there that could be super useful for, uh, for science and also for management. But how do we get it from, you know, from the experiential level that is uh, uh, of the fishers into uh, reports and into, um, yeah, into the, uh, into this, in, into the science? And it's interesting because in many other countries, like for example, if you look at, uh, 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 for example, um, Africa, uh, Asia, uh, um, areas where the stock assessments are just, uh, and the potential to collect uh, data is maybe the capacity is not as good um, as it is in our part of the world, a lot of uh, uh, of exper experiential knowledge of fishers is actually being used by scientists and by managers, uh, and proves to be f super useful. And I think it, it yeah it has something to do also with this these different value systems. Like here in the West, we want to have things measured uh, and put in, uh, in in numbers, and if it's not in that format, there is this feeling yeah it's maybe not good enough. But on the other hand, we see that in many areas where uh, ecological knowledge from fishers has been used in Asia, Africa, also in with Native American uh, First Nations, for example, uh, that knowledge is 
has, has proved to be incredibly useful and a really good basis for management as well. So I really think we need to start changing, uh, changing our thinking um, in our advisory systems. I completely agree with every word you've said there, Natalie. The one concern about it going forward here is the fear is if there's a downturn in the fishing and in the industry here and less boats, the fear there's going to be less and less young people coming, there are, are, there are less and less young people being attracted yeah. to become fishermen and the fear is all that knowledge you talked about there, it could be a generation thing, and there's, there's, it goes, it's, it's gone. Yeah, yeah I and agree. A there's a real genuine fear of that. I, I, I completely agree, and we are actually seeing this, uh, this already. And I think that's why it's so important that that you know social scientists start documenting this, uh, uh, this knowledge so that it doesn't get lost and. The problem there is, of course, um, you're doing that science. It's, 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 uh, we need funding to do that. And a lot of the, f well, most of the funding actually uh, on fisheries is actually going to biological data collection. Uh, so also, um, you know, um, within ICES, uh, we want to start getting these sort of human dimension aspects more into the, the science and the advice. But the, the problem is that there is hardly any funding for social scientists to participate in fisheries, uh, in fisheries science. And I think that's something that is really needs to, uh, uh, really needs to change. So um, I hope it will. Uh, and I share your concern about uh, knowledge getting uh, lost. Because, I mean, it's one thing that we are facing, for example, now, you know, going to my own country in the Netherlands, we've just had a decommissioning scheme where 50 uh, uh, beam trawlers have been decommissioned, which is uh, um, a large part of, of the fleet. It's more than one third of the Dutch beam troll fleet is now, is now being decommissioned. Uh, and the decommissioning scheme was done in such a way that it's going to be very, very difficult for um, uh, younger skippers to actually uh, uh, return into the fishery because the quota was decommissioned as well. And also you're not allowed to ent enter the fishery um, for the next five years. So it's going to be super difficult to actually com to come back uh, as a fisher if if your dad has now decommissioned uh, yeah. uh, its vessel. And that also meant that, uh, you know, the uh, not only the knowledge get, gets lost, but it also has a huge impact on fishing communities. So, um, for example, uh, in the north of the Netherlands, uh, the port of Den Helder, uh, the auction had to close because the entire Den Helder fleet and also the Tessel fleet who... Um, who land, landed at that auction has have completely decommissioned. It also meant that the fishing co-op had to close. Um, so it also means, you know, that a lot of the the the, um, the community around fishing has completely changed. And we were very lucky uh, uh, in in the Netherlands. Although I think it's a really sad thing that we had to do that was that our government actually gave. Uh, us so a couple of social scientists funding to actually document what was going on in these uh, in these communities so that the knowledge uh, so that that wouldn't get lost um, 
and it's yeah it's 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 sad right that 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 this has to be documented in a way but if we don't document it it will get lost uh, forever and i think fisheries the coming years are going to have massive massive changes um so i really yeah i really hope that uh social scientists all over Europe and also the UK. Uh, I include the UK in that as 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 as, as well. So Europe as a region, uh, you know, can can start documenting um, communities, um, uh, uh, how they relate to fisheries, um, so that that information and knowledge doesn't, uh, and also the knowledge that fishers have, so that it doesn't get lost. You know what you've said there about your own situation in Holland. It's absolute same in Scotland. We have some of the, I mean, my one of my home ports here, I'm only less than 10 miles away from it, Wick, was one of the, was pre-war, just after the war, it was the biggest herring port in the world. It's now a yacht marina for pleasure boats. And yeah. if, a, if any fishing boat wants to come into Wick to land their fish now, they have to get permission because it's not a designated port any longer. And the other thing which resonates with what you said, we used to have a rule of thumb. Obviously, I'm retired out of the industry directly now, but we used to have a rule of thumb with the industry. For every fisherman at sea, there were seven jobs ashore between the selling, the buyers, the lorry, you know, the lorry drivers, the filleters, fish shops. There'd be seven jobs ashore for every one at sea. So it, as you said, it has a massive impact on coastal communities. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. See, when your workshop discussions Natalie, you mentioned the uniqueness of Fisher's knowledge and integrity of science. Do you link that together? Um, yeah, this it is somehow linked. I mean, uh, when when you talk about uh, science industry research uh, collaboration and using. Uh, uh, data that have been actively uh, collected by the fishing industry. So outside, you know, the sort of the, the statutory data, like logbook information that is being used in, in, in fishery science. Uh, there is sometimes um, concerns uh, that if the people who actually uh, rely on the science bring in the data, that there could that the data could be somehow tainted, right? So uh, it's in a fisher's interest, of course, you know, that uh, that he gets as much uh, quota as possible. Um, and if then, you know, the science that is used to, um, to, to, to by the, by the politicians to set the quota, if the data for that science actually comes from the industry, there are 
certain parties who could uh, who, who voice concerns about this. They say, well, the integrity of science could potentially be uh, be damaged because it's basically interest groups who are uh, producing the data, and it's in their interest, of course, to produce data that are in their favor. So this is not my opinion, but this is something that uh, that is being uh, uh, being voiced. So that's a concern uh, that you have to take uh, seriously. Um, so we looked uh, with a group of scientists at the evidence for situations where, um, for documented evidence, uh, where uh, data perhaps had been uh, tampered with or where the industry uh, uh, clearly had a conflict of interest with, uh, with the data um, to see if this was really a big, uh, a big problem. And, um, well, in the whole uh, documented evidence of ICES, we could only find one example where something like this had, um, uh, had happened. Um, so, it, yeah, it, it, is, it, it could be a concern, it is a concern, but it's not necessarily a big problem, and it's a problem that you can address. Also, at the same time, I think it's really, really important to point out that the data that scientists produce are also not perfect, right? There can also be uh, there's all kinds of problems with some of the data that that we that we have, uh, for example, because there's not enough money to collect sufficient data, and these data are still uh, are still being used because it's the best thing that we have. So it's not only um, uh, it's 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 not only you know officials collect data that, that that they may not necessarily be completely perfect it the same goes for scientists and the bottom line is whoever collects the data you just have to make sure that, that there is a really good quality assurance system and that's something that can uh, that can be arranged so for example um, i uh, previously gave this example of Dutch fishers who collect discards data, so uh, uh, data about uh, undersized catches. So what they do is um, we have a, uh, we have twenty five fish, uh, fishers who collaborate in this system, and every once in a while we ask one of them, "Can you uh, take uh, two bags from your catch?" Um, so they have to take, uh, you know, from uh, they have to take ungraded catch, take a, a, a fill it back, and they will bring it uh, back to this uh, to the to, to land. We pick it up at the auctions, and we do then, uh, uh, you know, we do all the measuring of the uh, the catch composition, the size, and and all that kind of stuff. And uh, there's f colleagues from uh, outside of our, uh, from other countries say, oh, but how can you trust the fishers that they don't fill the bag bit with uh, only discards that are very, very big in size, you know, or they keep certain species out or whatever. And um, we, well, we said to them, well, first of all, you know, you also, uh, you know, you don't have this program and you expect fishers to trust your data. So why don't, you know, why wouldn't we trust their data and also, What's, what's happening is that we have an observer program still uh, as a validation. So we do go out on trips uh, still. And what we actually see is that the data that the fishers collect are, um, there's no differences between the data that we collect. Um, so there is no reason to, for any suspicion whatsoever that these discard samples that the fishing industry, that the fishers take, takes are somehow tampered, uh, tampered with. And, 
and we also have a very open discussion with the fishers about because um, uh, when they when they would tamper with the data, we can actually see it, and it's just not in their interest because they get a, a, a small financial compensation if the sample is not handed in. Uh, the way it should be, they won't get that, right? And we also tell them, like, if you hand in bad samples, we cannot use it. And it means that the stock assessment has just not, the data are just not as good. And if you can keep that discussion really open, then there really is no need to start um, worrying about these things. And I think, you know, people who say who say this, like, you know, uh, yeah, but it, it, um, if, if you let fishers collect data, it, it will uh, impede on the quality of the science and also with the integrity of the science. I think they haven't really had that experience of um, working with fishers about... Uh, they don't, uh, yeah, they don't have that experience. They don't think about ways how you could validate it, uh, which which we have. And usually, if you start entering in a discussion with them, then they, you know, people will understand. But it is, yeah, you need to make sure that there's good quality assurance. But that's irrespect irrespective of who collects the data. I mean, I also expect that my colleagues adhere to quality uh, standards, uh, you know, when they collect data. So. We should treat them all in the same way. I, yet again, I agree with you. And I'm, what I was going to suggest was this, which I'm absolutely sure it's the same with your industry, the fisher and the fishermen in Holland is the way fishermen here view that now, and the way they would see the response to what you said there, Natalie is. Every fisherman that's left now is heavily, heavily committed financially with some of them, their grandfathers, fathers and sons, their whole families are involved. And they, their answer to anybody criticizing, asking that is, why, what is it, is it not in our interest to do anything but do it properly because it is their future. Of course, it is, and I think that's also why it's really. Uh, I think you know it could. It's, it's really interesting. I think for fishers as well to get involved in these sort of projects because it's 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 about, yeah, it's about their future. And I think we never, sh we, we should never forget, uh, we should never forget that. And also to me, you know, when you work with fishers in collecting data, uh, we often start to, you know, people have this sort of, uh, it's them and us, right? But it's we, it's us together who work on, um, on, on these, on these data and on uh, collecting the information. So I think many of, uh, and I think that's a really nice thing. Um, and it's, it's about trust as well. Eh? It's about um, trust in each other, uh, about each other's motives as well. And the more you work together with fishers, the better that level of trust uh, happens. And of course, it doesn't always mean that you that we are in agreement, right? Um, but uh, and you don't have to be. I mean, even when you, you with your best friend or with your 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 life partner, you don't have always have to be in agreement. But you have to be able to. Tr trust one another in such a way that you can actually talk about your difference uh, and also accept that maybe someone has a different view on things. And I think that's, you know, one of the really nice things when you establish this, uh, when, when fishers and scientists establish this relation of trust together, 
then a lot of um yeah you, you a real uh, a new world starts opening i think for both of uh, both of them the only one word i would add to it you said there as far as trust is concerned is respect yes exactly respect is also super super important uh here and uh it's really interesting how uh yeah, how that plays out, because respect is also something that you look at from, you know, from your own lens. I mean, I can really remember the last time I went on a, on a beam trawler, I was on a, uh, we were doing this uh, survival uh, study. So we would be at, you know, we would wake up at 6.30, be on, on deck at 7 to start doing the experiments. And then at uh, 9.30 in the evening, we would still be uh, sitting behind our computers to put in all the data. We would be finished by 10. And it was really interesting because the fish said, oh, we really respect uh, uh, respect you. You know, your working day is so long. It's amazing. And it was so funny because the two of us were like, oh, my gosh, how can these fishers just every two and a half hours the bell rings again and they have to get up for the next hole. How can and this just goes That's on right. and on and on? So we, we really respected their work ethics. And it's really yeah. nice, you know, being on the same vessel or being on the same boat actually shows you that, uh, yeah. But, but that the important do thing about trust and respect, which makes it work. It's exactly. Got to be bo- it's got to be both ways. Exactly. Exactly. And it's also, yeah, one of the things... Um, for example, um, in the Netherlands, we also invite the fishers as observer on the fish stock surveys, uh, because the surveys are something that fishers always, there's always suspicions about the surveys, because uh, of course we do the surveys in a standardized way. So we use, uh, we go to the same areas every year. We use fishing nets that have not changed since the 1960s, because it has to be standardized to see differences from one year to the next. And of course, fishers, they go to sea because they want to catch as much as possible in an efficient, uh, in an efficient way. So they improve their gears all the time. They go to areas where they think from, where they know from experience, they hope they can catch a lot. And that's very different from the way scientists, uh, fish. And we could never really get this, uh, get fishers to sort of understand, you know, that that a survey is a very, very different concept. So we said, okay, why don't you come and join uh, join us? And it was really scary for the scientists because they were like, oh, we're getting a fisher on board and he's going to criticize us and and ask difficult questions. And it was lovely because after the, the, the week, the fisher observer was like, oh, this is fantastic. I really understand now what the survey is about. I could ask the scientists all these questions. They work, you know, they work really hard. They actually measure the entire catch. It's really uh, amazing. And I, um, and the nice thing is um, our fishing news actually wrote a short report every time a fisher observer has been on a survey. And that really also helps uh, understanding uh, amongst the fishing industry about why surveys are done in the way they are doing. And we started this 17 years ago and still on the main surveys every year we have uh, for the full survey weeks, we have fishers observers on board. And that also helps the trust and the mutual respect because I think it also, well, I know it also helped um, my scientist colleagues who carry out the surveys to understand how much is at stake for the fishers. 
in terms of because these surveys are a super important part of the stock assessments. So by talking to the fishers, they also understand, oh, there is, you know, livelihoods behind this work that we are doing. And I think that's something, you know, having that kind of interaction, that is something that we should really foster and we should do much and much more because I think only together we can really, you know, achieve if fishers and, and scientists work in isolation from each other. I think we're just not using, you know, uh, the best knowledge on both parts that we that we have. That's great to hear. Uh, if I could maybe just take you back slightly to when you said about people questioning whether you could trust the fishermen or not. What went through my mind is, as I said, it's about trust and respect. It goes both ways. Where I would have been a wee bit concerned about trusting with that one is the person that's questioning it, not the person you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, you, well, you can imagine sometimes it's, it's, it's just really sort of from uh, it, 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 uh, th this question doesn't have to be. Um, how do I say it in English? Um, so this this question about you know can you trust the fishers or can you trust the data? It doesn't have to be uh, necess necess necessarily be from some kind of malicious intent or whatever. Uh, very often it's just because people don't know and it's like curiosity how it works. Um, of course, there will always be parties who um, you have a certain agenda. Um, yeah, who will use the tr the trust, or uh, how can you trust those data as a as a way to forward their own agenda? But I must say, amongst the scientists that I've spoken to, for many of them, it's more the unknown and the curiosity that us that. And when you talk about you talk to them, say, oh, it's really interesting, and I would also really like to try that. And it's you know, it's 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 not because they have some hidden agenda or something. So yeah. it also means that you have to talk as fishers and also as scientists. You just have to talk to, uh, be open to critical questions from people who are not necessarily maybe so aware about um, the benefits of working with fishers and how you can deal with um, quality and integrity um, issues. But that said, love... yeah, there will always be parties with a certain, yeah, who have a certain uh, agenda. And yeah, maybe, uh, yeah. That's I something I think that you, you just have to deal with. I love the way you talk about your interaction with fishers because you've, and I can just hear it even in your voice, that you have a respect and, a, and an appreciation for for what you get, for what you give and what you get. And in any situation, as you say, whether it's with partners or with life in general, it's got to be give and take. It can never be one way. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's, yeah, that's also um, within the science community. I think that's, uh, that, that, that is similar. I mean, as a social scientist, I talk with fishers a lot, right? So, uh, and it's also, I see it as my job to make their knowledge uh, available to, um, uh, to fisheries biologists. And, uh, and I really like, you know, talking to fishers and, and going on boats and, but that yeah. should not be confused. Like sometimes people, like even colleagues in, you know, in the biological sciences, for example, confuse this. Uh, they say, oh, but you're too passionate about fishers, you know, and maybe uh, you're just 
uh, you're, you're a bit uh, pro-fishers, for example. And then I say, yeah, but you're passionate about um, seals or passionate about uh, cod or whatever species that they're working on. But that doesn't mean that you put the interest of the seals or the cod necessarily in uh, in front of your um, your you know your scientific scientific responsibility. And that's the same for me, you know, uh, I can talk to fishers, I can be friends with fishers, I am friends with, with fishers, uh, but as a scientist, uh, of course, I approach, uh, I do my work using um, uh, my training as a social social scientist and all the methods that I've, uh, that I've, that I've learned, um, uh, you know, in my training. Um, and that's that's okay so you can still be passionate about fishers or about a certain species or whatever as, as long as you do your science uh, uh yeah in a in a in a sound way i think that's the most that's the most important uh bit you're you're talking with somebody very like-minded just now natalie because i my last 20 years uh, my career was in a seafood restaurant I had owned in a place called Scrapter, the on the north coast here. And I, it was a seafood restaurant, 100% seafood. And I used to still class myself as being in, I used to tell people I was still classed myself as being in the fishing industry, not the hospitality industry, because... For one, it was 100% seafood, and after 20 years, I still had more fishermen friends than chef friends. <laughs> if, if I could ask you now, just asking about the comparison, because I've been so interested here in what you say about ICs, with the MSC, MCS, and WWF, that's Marine Stewardship Council, Marine Conservation Society, and Worldwide, Worldwide Fund. Is there, is there a similarity in the sciences? Because there's a difference in the agendas, which a word you mentioned earlier. Yeah, I, I think it, the main difference are, of course, uh, ICES is a science organization. Uh, they don't have an uh, opinion on, uh, you know, which fish uh, you should or, you sh or, or shouldn't eat or is a pre preferred choice, uh, which, for example, the Marine Conservation Societies, the fish guides, as, as, as we call them in the Netherlands, I'm not sure what they're called in, in, in English. Uh, um, so uh, ISIS basically is an organization who collects, uh, uh, who collects data, does stock assessment, and then uh, based on um, yeah the uh, the question that uh, the European Commission or the UK or Norway asks says well you know this is uh, what you could um, what they could catch based on on the data and based based on the management plan that was agreed by um, by by the politicians and what uh, what the Marine Stewardship Council and the fish uh, choice the consumer choice guides of MCS and WWF does. Is they often use the uh, the data and the, um, the stock assessments that ISIS does as part of their um, assessment 
of the sustainability of, of fisheries. So they actually use IC's uh, information, and that's that's fine because IC's information is public information. It's open. It's it's not uh, it's widely available. I think the main difference between mar the Marine Stewardship Council and the the, sea the consumer seafood guides is that. Uh, all of them look at sustainability from uh, uh, different from uh, the perspective of how healthy is the stock, uh, how well is the stock managed, and what are the impacts of the fisheries on uh, on the ecosystem. And the big difference is that uh, is that the Marine Stewardship Council has set an international standard um, uh, for that, and they also. Um, which is based on on uh, United Nations uh, standards of the Food and Agriculture Organization, and they don't uh, do the certification themselves. So it's a third party uh, uh, assessment. Um, and the fish consumer guides by MCS and WWF, it's a self-assessment. So uh, uh, MCS and WWF, they have developed uh, certain criteria for sustainable fisheries, and they also do the assessment of whether fisheries meet those criteria themselves. And with the MSC, that's very different. I mean, it's a third party certifier uh, who does that. There is also um, uh, potential for stakeholders to, um, to follow the assessment and also to, uh, to provide comments and also to, uh, for example, to object against a decision that is being made. So that's a very, very different system, I think, in terms of, uh, yeah, um, Transparency um, uh, con and conflict of, conflict of interest, uh, and also uh, yeah levels of participation of stakeholders. But yeah, those systems are very different again from ICs because ICs just brings together uh, the science and they don't have an opinion on then on uh, should you yeah is this a preferred choice for a consumer to eat. That's not, I mean, that's not something that scientists, I think, is a responsibility for scientists. I think you should be, as a scientist, you should be very, very careful uh, to keep your own, to keep your personal opinions, because of course, everybody also has a personal opinion to yourself, because you have to be, yeah, you have to be independent, right? Uh, it's striking me listening to you today, Natalie, because you talk about a respect and uh, and how you're with with fishermen, and honestly, the fishermen here anyway, and from the way you talk, I'm quite sure they're the same in Holland. There's almost a fear about when some of that, like the MCS, WWF, when some of them get a hold of some a statement of any kind. It's a damaging way they distort it and they come out and they've got such a strong voice with the public and it's it's, it's to, to no I'll, I'll not be frightened to say it. It's, it's almost corrupt the way they because it's all about money it's and and I even at this restaurant I talked about I've had I've had people coming into the restaurant. Now, over the years we had the restaurant, we were, this is not about me, but it's just stating a fact, we were number six in the top sustainable restaurants in the world. We were voted number six in the top ten in the world. 
on our sustainability. We've been the UK Sustainable Restaurant of the Year, the Scottish Sustainable Restaurant of the Year. And after all that, we would have somebody come in and looking at the menu and they would see cod and say, oh, I can't have that. It's not sustainable. And we'd be saying, yes, it is. And so, so there was a distortion. But two points I was going to make on that one was with the MCS, I was a so-called advisor with them and they would ask every so often they would come on and ask for any comments or advice on that. And I have to say, I just thought, it's, I wasn't comfortable, but I thought, well, we try to make a, it's my passion, it's my interest, the fishing industry is my life. I felt it's contributing something. It's, it's hopefully going to be beneficial to the industry, but I can't honestly say that they ever took one bit of advice I give them. One of the things that I was really strongly against them on, there was a monkfish was a species, and there, and the, the other thing before I come to that, I always felt this traffic light system they had. Red, green was go. You can eat, if it's a species with green, you can eat anything you want, all as much as you want. If it's amber, you have to go easy with it. If it's red, you don't touch it. And I was always felt really strongly that, as we've discussed ourselves today, Seafood fish conservation is much more complex than three colours. Much more complex. And they had monkfish. The only monkfish they would recommend people use, eat, is if it's mature monkfish and it's caught by gillnet. And I said to them, I said, look, gillnet is the most one of the most damaging forms of fishing known in the, around the world. And I, and I give them facts, and the facts actually came from EU, from Brussels. And with gillnet and longline, or the one, I can't remember the exact year, it would be probably about two, 2016, 17. The gillnet and longline and the, around the EU waters was it not it killed between four to five hundred thousand mammals that were caught and killed not fish it could be wader birds seals and that so i said it's hugely damaging and plus the fact if it break if the nets break off which there's no man-made fiber that, that can stand up to the what the the weather can throw at it. So if it breaks free and it's it's going to be a rogue, it's going to be a rogue net ghost fishing for and it'll never rot. So it's going to continue to catch fish. It's such a damaging form of fishing, and there's you promoting it, but. 
And so I was really against that one. And with the MSC, I we were asked to be we get chain of custody with the MSC in the restaurant. We had the what was then Prince Charles, who's now our king. He was coming up to the area. It was there. It was an anniversary for them, so they wanted. We were a we were a award-winning restaurant. The prince was going to be in the area. They wanted us to do something. So, and we joined. So we became we got chain of custody with the MSC. We worked away with that until. We got a situation where it was in the summer. We were we had mackerel on the menu. It is right bang in the season for mackerel. The local boats were out in the bay. I could I wouldn't say I could throw a stone and hit them, but I could see them just fishing in the bay outside. They would come in and I would get the mackerel, and the mackerel were so fresh they were still kicking. And and we had them in the menu, but we couldn't we couldn't use MSC for that. We would have to get them frozen from Peterhead before we could use them, and they didn't recognise. So we had to we had to get bulk frozen mackerel trucked from Peterhead rather than take what was caught within 200 metres of the restaurant landed. So I just thought, this is, this is not for me. And it wasn't doing anything for the industry. It was, it was, so I don't, I don't like their systems. And I'm even less happy about it when you tell me it's your information they're going away with and manipulating it for the, what suits them. Well, I, th I think, you know, what, 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 they're, uh, what, what they're doing for the assessment is using uh, ICES uh, data on stocks, for example, but they also, of course, use data from other, uh, from other parties. So, um, so that, of course, they're looking, if a stock has been assessed uh, by ICES, you can actually look at, how, is it being used, you know, is it at sustainable levels? And that's something that they then, uh, the, you know, the both uh, the MSC certifiers, uh, but also the um, the fish guides of MCS and uh, WWF would use. But they also use lots of other information um, uh, uh, for this, for example, for the ecosystem impacts and for the management advice. So uh, it's based on a combination of, um, uh, yeah, of, of, of of data sources, of information sources, um, and yeah, what what I prefer about the MSC is that uh, it's you know it's a transparent system and the standards it's 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 it's, it's a very um, yeah the, very high standard. The bar is set very high for fisheries uh, nowadays, and they they also allow fishers who are not uh, fisheries who are not completely perfect yet to be to become certified certified provided they uh, improve and also that process is all transparent and I really like that about it um, for me it's you know I find it more difficult when I don't know what the assessment was uh, 
was like. Uh, but that, that's obviously a choice that is being made by uh, the seafood, uh, by the other seafood uh, guides. And uh, yeah. 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 One thing I would ask you, did you learn a lot from the North Sea Advisory Council in your time? Yes. Uh, yeah, it's actually very, uh, this year it's the, it's the 20th anniversary <laughs> uh, of the North Sea Advisory Council. Uh, I um, And I was in it uh, uh, right from the beginning, so when it was, uh, when it was set up. And to me, it was uh, it was great because uh, the North Sea Advisory Council and also its predecessor, the, the North Sea Fisheries Partnership, it was called. Uh, what was really nice uh, was that there was this bonding between the different industries from the different member, you know, countries around the North Sea, because um, uh, there wasn't a lot of talking to uh, to each other. Like people would meet each other maybe in you know in Brussels during quota negotiations or things like that. But the, the nice thing about the advisory council was that um, y you would actually have a couple of days uh, together. And then also, of course, like in the evening, the social events, people would go to the, you know, for dinner together, have some drinks in the bar. And then uh, that's where a lot of relationship building and bonding starts. And Fishers, um, I remember at the time uh, in the beginning, there were actually a couple of still active uh, Fishers. Um, members because they were representatives of national fisheries organizations. Um, I remember very well, uh, you know, from the UK, uh, Arnold Locker and Fred Normandale, and then there was uh, Fleming Christensen from uh, Denmark and, and Wim de Boer um, uh, from uh, the Netherlands. The, the Fleming and, and, and Wim, unfortunately, they both passed away, but they became through these meetings, they really started bonding and saying like, look, we are all fishers and it doesn't really matter which country we are from. Uh, we have to work together uh, and we have to make sure that, you know, the best management advice is being given to the managers. And also uh, we have to work together towards, you know, with the scientists. They really realized that it didn't really um, matter where you're, you're from. Uh, you're all fishing in the same pond on similar species and you're, working with, uh, you're, you're having, experiencing also the same challenges, um, uh, like quota cuts or uh, new approaches to management. And now, for example, offshore wind is something I think that is, uh, wind farming is something that really um, um, impacts fishing, whatever uh, nationality they're from. And that, I think, was a great thing in the North Sea uh, Act in those, uh, RAC, in those uh, advisory council, in those first day days like the you know just just the bonding and the the realization we really have to work together on this we're in the same boat yeah i think it's just what you've been saying all along how you feel it's worked so well for to be bonding and people working together and communicating yeah and of course you know it doesn't necessarily mean that then further down you know the chain so to speak, your advice or your science is being taken up because I, that was also one of the frustrations in the North Sea Advisory Council in the beginning was that the commission wasn't really used to getting uh, advice, united advice from the fishing industries around the North Sea 
with also NGOs uh, on board. So this, this for, for them was also something that was very new. So in the, particularly in the beginning, a lot of the advice from the councils, advisory councils didn't actually make it into uh, eventual policy decisions. But that is something that I think also um, changed. So, you know, there is, um, and I, I, that comes back to what I was saying in the beginning, officials very often expect that change is immediate when you start working together with each other or with fishers, but it often takes a little bit of uh, of time. So you, there needs to be some patience involved as well, and uh, that's sometimes really difficult. I mean, I'm a, I'm an impatient person myself, myself uh, so I appreciate that. But particularly when you know when your business is on the uh, is is at stake, uh, you know you, yeah, certainly you want to have a quick as possible uh, possible um, uh, you know a good decision you don't want to wait but sometimes yeah it's just how it goes huh? things uh, change requires time fisherman I think you're referring <laughs> to they call it real time yeah yeah exactly and do you not do you not think that's good or well, it is. I mean, and I, I, I also I understand the frustration, for example, when fishers suddenly see um, um, a stock increasing, right? They, they are the first ones to see this in their, in their, catches, in their catches, but science is always uh, running uh, a year behind. In, um, uh, so the scientists don't necessarily pick up these big, you know, this, the, these, these changes that are happening within uh, in the in the current year and i think that's also why we need to start thinking about how can we deal with actually that kind of information as 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 well uh, and there is no system for that uh, as yet not within ICs, but also not within the european um, uh, union and i probably also not in the in the uk i think in your current uh, constellation but it's it's something that i think it's we should start thinking about like how do we deal with um, direct information from uh, uh, at sea and it's it's not only you know in i think in terms of the the positives in, in terms of fishers seeing that catches are Im improving which is not necessarily uh, immediately pick, picked up by scientists but it could also be when fishers see something is wrong and we've had situations of course and, and i mean i think the the example of the northern cod in canada uh, the collapse of the biggest cod fishery in in the world on the grand banks that was something that intra fishers were actually predicting they were actually noticing that things were uh, were going wrong and they were not you know taken seriously by the scientists because their models didn't yet show uh, what was going what was going on so I think that you know they learned a very uh, hard lesson there because the fishery collapsed, it was closed, lots of jobs got lost, communities was were, were lost, and the stock still hasn't recovered because basically the the, the you know managers measures were taken when it was already uh, too late, and I think that is something that we should avoid at all at all cost, and we should learn from those lessons. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there's a saying in this country. Where there's a will, there's a way. Yes. And I would definitely say your point there, there's a will with Scottish fishermen, UK fishermen, but definitely with Scottish fishermen to contribute and and work work with yourselves. So you can certainly, that message comes over to me loud and clear every 
fishermen I'm talking to. Yeah, so and that's I'd really good. That's really good to to uh, to hear. And I'm quite sure that uh, my colleagues in in Scotland at the science and at the at the marine lab also were really happy to hear that. You know. Yeah. 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 Natalie, to pull things up, mm -hmm. could I ask you? We're for. I mean, you've obviously done a huge amount of work, and I've read your a lot of your papers and things. Where can people look to to see what you and learn and what you do and where you do it? Okay, so um, well, that's obvious. I, I am obviously on LinkedIn, uh, social media platform where uh, people can follow me, uh, and there is also um, uh, all the scientists who work at uh, the university where or the, the institute where I work. They have their own web page with all the uh, publications that they have, and that's not only scientific publications, but it's also reports and um, articles in the in the Dutch fishing news, which unfortunately are in Dutch, but um, that's also an outlet where you could. Um, uh, find information and then I'm on Twitter or sorry on X I should say where I'm still active uh, so that's also another way of uh, hooking up I've looked so, at I've, I've, I've looked at got got some of your papers on 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 there did you yeah. call it art Twitter I would still call it Twitter I also still call it Twitter I just corrected myself to X because I thought oh it's officially called X but I, I call it Twitter so if people want to, you know, to 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 get in touch, um, um, they can do, and they have a Twitter account. They can uh, they can follow me, and I'll make sure to uh, to respond. So my name is at and then Natalie Steins on Twitter. Natalie, I am so grateful and really enjoyed your very upbeat view on the on the industry, and it's quite encouraging, very encouraging. We have a saying here, which I'm sure you'll know and may probably use in Holland. We would class you as a glass half full person. <laughs> that's a, I think that uh, you hit it spot on because that's also how, how I, uh, I would see myself. We have the same expression in the Netherlands. Excellent, because yes. the other the other way is a glass half empty. Yes, exactly. It's just it's just how different people see the same thing. True, I am of the half full uh, <laughs> type. Yes. <laughs>